This is Upwell, a new podcast from Only One, featuring entrepreneurs, advocates, and leaders working to protect and restore the ocean and the planet. And I'm your host, Aaron Kinnery. Today, we have Michelle Tuchelar, a research scientist at Stanford University's Center for Ocean Solutions and an expert on how climate change is impacting blue food systems around the world. Let's dive in. Michelle, thank you so much for joining Upwell. You're a research scientist at Stanford University's Center for Ocean Solutions. What's the mission of the center and what's your area of focus? Hi, Erin. Nice to be here. Um, the f- mission of the center is to, uh, through interdisciplinary research on social and uh, ecological issues facing the ocean, really bridge research and action. So we work in various different areas. And the one that I focus on most is bringing um, what we have coined blue foods more firmly into food system um, and other um, and uh, other high level uh, policy arenas. And so when we say blue foods, we mean uh, all the foods that come from water. So uh, fisheries and aquaculture, both in the ocean um, and in freshwater systems. Um, and that can be anything from fish or shellfish or um, aquatic plants. Um, and for a really long time, when uh, there have been discussions about future food systems, those have really just focused on um, livestock and uh, terrestrial agriculture. And so we're um, our, our mission has been uh, to make sure that oceans and uh, fisheries are properly represented in those discussions. Great. And how many people worldwide depend on blue food for their sustenance or for their livelihoods? Yeah, that's a, that's a lot of people, actually. So um, and this is a really timely question, as there is a major study that was released yesterday. It was a collaboration between Juke and Worldfish and the FAO. It's called Illuminating Hidden Harvest. And they were looking at the important contributions of small-scale fisheries to uh, food security and livelihoods around the world. Uh, and it turns out that more than 60 million people in the world are directly employed in fisheries. But then if we look at uh, livelihoods more broadly, it's more than uh, 500 million people. Um, and then if we if we look at um, consumption of blue foods, it's actually close to 3 billion people around the world who get at least 20% of their protein from um, blue foods. And so uh, that's a huge number of people. And I should mention that it's really not just protein that people are getting from those fish, but it's also really key uh, micronutrients like calcium, iron, vitamin B12, um, omega-3 fatty acids. Um, so it's really important for the, the health and well-being of billions of people around the world. And a big focus of your research has been how climate change has impacted the sector and the ocean's ability to support fisheries and aquaculture. Can you talk a little bit about some of your findings? Yeah, sure. So um, I think to start off with, it's really important to note that that the fisheries and aquaculture sector is incredibly diverse. So around the world, there's more than 2,500 species of blue foods that are either uh, caught or um, or uh, farmed. And that means that with such a diversity of systems and species, it also means that climate change is going to impact the sector in many diverse ways. So, for instance, if we look at marine fisheries, we're already beginning to see that 
the impacts of warming and uh, deoxygenation and changes in ocean um, currents are affecting the productivity of fish stocks around the world. So we're seeing changes in uh, species composition, but also where they are in the world. Um, so, so that's really changing where people are fishing and what is getting caught. Uh, but on top of that, um, ocean acidification is a threat that uniquely affects uh, fisheries. It's not really a thing that, that affects land ecosystems um, and is imp particularly important for coral reefs and um, shellfish. Um, we're also seeing increasing rates of um, marine heat waves and heat waves in general. So that's obviously important for the ecosystem itself, but also for the people that work in fisheries and aquaculture. Um, and then Closer to the coast, there is, of course, um, increasing rates of storms and sea level rise. So that's really impacting coastal infrastructure. Uh, we've seen in the last couple of years, really big hurricanes go through, say, the Caribbean and, and uh, destroying um, ports and boats and all the important um, ingredients to fishing. And then aquaculture is, um, as, a, as a farming operation is a little bit different in the, the climate risks it faces. Um, a lot of aquaculture is fed, so then it's connected to global feed markets and the impact of climate thereon. And we're also seeing that climate change is increasing rates of uh, pests and pathogens in farming, which is already uh, quite a big issue. Um, and we're seeing that uh, that as fish farmers apply, say, antibiotics in their fish, we're seeing high rates of uh, antimicrobial resistance and climate change might amplify that. So it's really a big diversity of, of uh, climate hazards impacting fisheries and aquaculture. Um, but I'd say overall, as, as a wild uh, harvest, so the actual marine and freshwater fisheries are probably going to be most strongly impacted, um, and, and therefore also the communities that depend on them. And what are some of those sort of follow-on effects or impacts and ramifications of climate change? So if you have a disruption within uh, the blue food system and the individuals that are focused on those for their livelihoods, what are some of the sort of follow-on effects that might happen? Um, first and foremost, impacts on food and nutrition security uh, and, the, and the many benefits that blue foods deliver to, um, to dependent communities. I, I think also it can threaten the, the long-term viability of coastal communities and um, and the livelihoods that support them. And um, that might have major ramifications for sort of, I guess, societal structure in, in ocean-facing countries. Uh, and then I think the shifting around of fish species is going to uh, pose major challenges for uh, joint governance of fish stocks um, because yeah, there's currently many overlapping jurisdictions that govern uh, fisheries and fisheries management. And as fish stocks move around, is going to be a big challenge to figure out how uh, that can be done in a fair um, and equitable way. You mentioned some of the ecosystems that are most at risk. What parts of the world uh, are, are facing some of the greatest challenges? Um, in the research that we did, we um, framed climate risk as a combination of the, the direct impacts of climate change, so the physical climate hazards, and then a combination of how dependent people are on blue food systems, either for their um, nutrition or economies or for their livelihoods, and then also looked at how vulnerable countries or communities are to the to the loss of those benefits. So looking at like nutritional uh, deficiencies or, or rates of 
employment, um, governance, things like that. And with that, we found that it is in particular countries in, um, in the tropics, so countries in Africa, South and Southeast Asia, South America, and many um, small island developing states across the Pacific and Indian Ocean um, are at really high risk of the impacts of climate change because for many of those countries, they are already highly dependent on coastal resources. And um, we know that for many climate hazards, the, the, they're actually projected to be strongest um, in the tropics. And then um, already given sort of the, the um, sustainable development challenges that many of these countries are facing, climate change might really amplify those. We've covered a lot of the threats. I was wondering, what are some of the wide-ranging positive outcomes of a thriving blue food sector? Like, what does it look like for a community? What does it actually mean for that community to be able to rely in a sustainable way on the ocean to provide sustenance and livelihood? Yeah, I think it can mean many different ways. Like, we've talked a lot about um, sort of the nutritional benefits and and. Um, that's been highlighted a lot in some of our research too. So the ways in which um, having improved access to uh, blue foods can actually help either alleviate micronutrient deficiencies or uh, support in particular the health of women and children um, can also be a healthy alternative to um, say red meat overconsumption um, and is de- generally really good for brain and eye health. So, so there's definitely a lot of food and uh, nutrition security benefits. Um, I'd also say, I, I think from a quantitative point of view, as sort of a, a modeler, I don't often get to really think about the many sort of cultural and, um, yeah, do I want to say like spiritual benefits that I think connections to um, ocean ecosystems offer? Um, there's often really long histories of relationships with the ocean in in coastal communities, um, and and uh, I guess these can can support uh, well-being in many kinds of ways. I know with uh, with land-based farming, uh, we do see that women make up a majority of smallholder farmers. Is that the case with artisanal fisheries as well? Um, there is actually increased attention now to the 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 gender makeup of um, of small scale fisheries, and um, it's about fifty fifty overall who is uh, involved in uh, blue food supply chains. Um, my if I if my memory is correct, I think it's a little bit less than half. Uh, women when it comes to the actual production of blue foods. But then when we look at the overall value chains, including processing and sales and getting the inputs, then we see higher number of women active. And I guess it's also important to know that certain kinds of blue food production aren't always included in the statistics. So for example, gleaning as a way of harvesting um, blue foods isn't always counted as being a blue food producer, uh, and then, then and then more like sustenance or subsistence based fishing isn't always counted either. Um, so there's also ways in which the statistics don't fully represent the gender makeup. Are there any examples around the world where we're seeing either communities or countries effectively manage or mitigate some of the impact of climate change or instill other sort of measures to continue to make their blue food systems? effective and sustainable? Yeah, I mean, I would say that the question of effectively mitigating the impact of climate change might be quite 
quite hard one. Like maybe the jury's still out and we might not be able to fully adapt to a changing climate. But that said, um, I was personally quite excited to learn about an example from the Seychelles. I, I got to attend um, COP27 last year in Egypt, the climate COP, and I got to talk with some people who are involved in the Seychelles uh, Conservation and Climate Adaptation Trust, if I get that acronym correctly. Uh, and so they're doing some quite exciting work, I think, linking both reduction in sort of social vulnerabilities, especially debt government debt reduction to community-led conservation and climate adaptation. Um, so I think those types of um, uh, so those types of in initiatives that can simultaneously reduce structural barriers and increase community engagement to me seem quite exciting solutions from a climate perspective. Angelique Pompano, who led that trust for the Seychelles, was on the podcast a couple episodes back, and she has some great writing and research on how to create a thriving blue economy and, and some of the work that they uh, did with the trust and also some of the lessons they learned a lot around governance as well and, and, and really getting the, uh, the buy-in of the community and putting um, uh, instilling more local governance. It was, it was, it was a lot, of, it was a great conversation. I'll, I'll be sure to send it to you. Um, you. Are there innovate, are there innovations in technology or techniques that you're seeing maybe from private sector startups or other um, uh, stakeholders within the business community uh, that are helping to, address some of these risks and impact? Mm, I, I got to say that I haven't been so focused on the, the technology side of things. Um, but maybe one thing to note here, not as much as a solution that's already being implemented, but just indicating the high need for, for further innovation is that if we look at commitments of um, adaptation financing over the last uh, 20 years, so I think it was between 2000 and 2020, only 4% of that adaptation financing has actually been allocated to fisheries. Um, I believe that was $2 billion out of whatever whatever the full pie then is. Uh, and so clearly um, the sector um, is under-recognized under or the needs of the sector are under-recognized when it comes to overall um, adaptation commitments. And so there is a lot of room uh, for additional innovation and investment. And you're also part of this uh, quite interesting and wide-ranging coalition called the Aquatic Blue Food Coalition. What's the mission of that organization? Yeah, well, I'll give a little bit of history there. So um, when I first joined Center for Ocean Solutions in 2019, we, as I mentioned before, it was with this ambition of bringing blue foods into food system conversations. And uh, we partnered with Stockholm Resilience Center and EAT to create this thing called the Blue Food Assessment, where we wrote a series of nine different papers about the important roles that blue foods uh, play in food systems in terms of their nutrition, their environmental sustainability, the important role of small-scale actors, uh, their climate risk. And our initial policy target for that was the UN Food System Summit. So this was the first time in, I believe, ever or a very long time that the UN had had gathered uh, specifically around the topic of food. And this happened in September 2021. And our explicit goal there was to make sure that blue foods were at the table. Um, and it turns out that there were a variety of other organizations and governments who also really had fisheries and aquaculture front of, front of mind. Um, so together with Environmental Defense Fund and the government of Iceland, we um, were able to 
to use the summit to launch a coalition around aquatic and blue foods. Um, and there are definitely different other coalitions that were launched uh, at the same time. So there's one around school meals and one around zero hunger, sustainable diets. Uh, and so aquatic blue food coalition has been one of them. Um, and at this point in time, we have over a dozen um, governments who are members and um, as many or more civil society organizations. And we have been working together over the last couple of years to um, to first bring blue foods into different high-level policy arenas. So we've gone to a Committee on World Food Security, UN Ocean Conference, COP27. Um, I think COP28 is going to be a major target as it might um, focus on food a lot. Um, and then also to support countries in um, working on blue food systems within countries. So um, we're working with uh, Pacific Island states on doing a blue food assessment in their region. Um, we're also working on um, uh, initiative to help countries bring uh, blue foods into their national climate strategies. Um, so we are trying to really bridge the, the global and the national level action. That's fantastic. How should folks, and this is, I apologize, a bit of a broad question, but how should folks think about the current state of aquaculture? <laughs> that is a very broad question. <laughs> yeah. Let me see if I can be more specific. I imagine there are things that can be done better in aquaculture. Um, and uh, what might some of those things be? What should policymakers maybe think about? What should even the consumer um, think about when they're in the grocery store and, 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 and thinking about products? So I think to, to preface that... Um... I think especially in maybe Western society, aquaculture often gets a bad rap, but already I think about half of fish uh, that are consumed around the world are from, produced through aquaculture. So it's an enormously important sector. Um, I think th thinking about some of the things that can be approved, um, there's issues around um, sort of pollution that comes from aquaculture. And so uh, it's important to think about where it is sited and, and how, how that pollution is managed. I mentioned before sort of the risk of disease in, in um, aquaculture systems and how that is managed. Um, an important one is also the, the uh, reliance of aquaculture on feed products. And this is a bit of a tough balance to strike. So for the types of fish that eat food, like that eat other fish, they need to have um, like fish feed. And a key ingredient of that ends up being fish meal and fish oil, which is usually derived from um, wild capture fisheries. Um, so that puts additional pressure on the ocean and is then food that's not directly consumed by humans. Um, on the other hand, you can choose to increase sort of the the grain and other the terrestrial ingredient component of your feed, but that might have then implications for um, the nutritional value of the fish that you're eating. Um, and uh, we say that, for instance, if soy is a key ingredient, that has its own challenges around deforestation, et cetera. So um, I think for consumers thinking about consuming lower on the food chain uh, at least reduces some of that feed dependency. Um, and then, yeah, there's various initiatives underway to um, certify aquaculture. I think import-export regulations are actually quite good at uh, thinking about the, the sort of environmental impacts and health sides of aquaculture. So um, 
not as bad as a rep as it maybe should get, but also noting that there are lots of challenges to overcome if this sector is to grow a lot. Great. That's why I was sort of avoiding being too leading in my question because I had a. I, I know that there's you know a wide range of um, of thinking on it, and obviously a wide range of um, stakeholders who are um, some of whom are being much more sustainable and 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 uh, sort of thinking more long term in their approach. Um, just to drill back down to the consumer level uh, and, and sort of in the final question. What are some other sort of key things folks might think about either on how their dietary choices might impact climate or the types of labels they might want to look for if they're thinking about consuming various blue foods, um, the types of blue foods that they might um, in- embrace? You mentioned a few of those. Um, but just, you know, from a, from a consumer level, uh, if I want to be a bit more responsible in my day-to-day habits, what are some things I might uh, keep front of mind? Yeah, well, it's it's always a little bit tricky to be in the business of like telling people what to eat. So, so, but if you're interested in that, in that question, here's some things to think about. I think um, historically when people have thought about seafood sustainability, it's been really along the lines of um, overfishing and uh, sort of ecosystem impacts. And it's only now that we're really starting to bring um, the carbon and other types of environmental footprint dimensions into considerations. And so if we look at carbon footprint and and uh, land use and nutrient pollution, things like that, um, the best blue foods to eat are either like small pelagic, so that's things like anchovies and sardines, um, or bivalves, so that's um, mussels or oysters or things like that. And coincidentally, both of those groups of blue foods also tend to be extremely nutritious or really high in micronutrients. So they would be a good bet for both your personal health and uh, the health of the climate. Um, And then I am in no means a label expert, um, but there's things like Seafood Watch that can then help you guide, help guide you more on the, I guess, the biodiversity and and ocean governance side of that question. yeah, and then I mean, at least here in San Francisco, where I'm based, there is a couple of things like community-supported fisheries that you can support. So it works like a like a farm box or a farm share, but then with fish. Um, and I think that's a really exciting way to support uh, local livelihoods and sustainably caught fish, and, and feel more connected to your ocean environment. Very cool. Yeah. Well, we get those questions all the time, and and also folks looking at things like seaweed and kelp and 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 various vegetation too. So, uh, well, I really appreciate you sharing all of this great information and 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 background on your research. I'll definitely leave links in the show notes where folks can find some of your recent reports and research, as well as the the research that you mentioned that just came out this past week. But really, I uh, wanted to thank you for taking the time today, and uh, look forward to continuing to chat further. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Michelle, for sharing background on the impact of climate change on blue food systems. I'll leave links to where you can find Michelle and the Stanford University Center for Ocean Solutions in the show notes, which you can find at only.one forward slash upwell. Once again, that's only.one forward slash upwell. This week's episode was engineered by Jake Bowles. Research was supported by Serena Cooper, and our cover art was designed by Joanna Marcus at Only One. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts and start your journey to help save the ocean and fix the climate today at only.one. For as little as $9, you can start planting coral and mangroves and removing plastics and carbon. 
Again, that's www.only.one. Thanks for tuning in and we'll be back next week with an all new episode of Upwell.